Hello and welcome to this week's episode of I Was Going To Podcast. My name is Stuart MacDonald and my co-host is Colin Cameron. The podcast is part of the I Was Going To Charity and each week we interview successful people to find out how they achieved their success. This information from the podcast is then edited into what we call golden nuggets and used within presentations to inform and inspire young people. This week's guest is Aidan Martin, author and recovering drug addict. Aidan Martin, thanks very much for joining us here and I was going to podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be asked. Thanks, Aidan. The first question we have asked uh, all our guests in the last 24 hours, uh, 24 hours, 24 months, is uh, one relating to COVID. And I just wondered, how have you found this unusual time and what have you been doing to keep yourself busy? So for me, it's it's not been a huge shock, even though it's something that's impacted us globally. Um, you know, in my younger years, my little brother was diagnosed with cancer and then in 2016, my son went through leukemia. Um, my, my brother tragically passed away, but my son is in recovery from it now. But Sorry reason, to hear that. So, right, thank you. And the, the reason I mentioned both of those things is because during both of those times, we had to isolate and we had to sanitize and we had to wear a mask. And if someone had like even a cold sore, they couldn't come round when my brother or my son was neutropenic when their blood levels were low. Um, so when COVID happened, even though it was impacting the whole entire world. This whole notion of having to isolate and having to keep safe and having to avoid certain things um, or, or people when they were ill, we've done it already in my family twice. So it didn't feel like a huge shock to the system. On another note, at the same time as when this all happened, I was halfway into my master's degree. I was working as an advocacy worker for addictions in West Lothian. I was releasing a book and then when the book came out overnight, I turned into a campaigner and a, a sort of political activist, and a lot of that stuff was getting done online. So even though there have been impacts, I've been so busy and I'm so used to this kind of environment as it is, it hasn't maybe impacted me specifically the way it might have impacted other people. Sure. Yeah, I can understand <clears throat> that. Uh, Aidan, and thanks very much for touching on such a personal uh, note on that, uh, Aidan. Aidan, we want to, uh, if we can, change it from the COVID story and hear a wee bit more about your own because there's going to be many stories I'm sure that uh, you want to uh, elaborate on with regards to that. So if if we can take you right the way back, you were born and educated in Scotland and I wonder if you could just tell us a wee bit more about that time. Did you enjoy your education? There's two sides to that because I don't feel like I was educated in high school. Um, The high school I went to was at that time, you know, in Ladyville where I grew up, considered one of the, the worst schools in Scotland. It uh, had, you know, bottom and league tables for educational attainment and attendance and behaviour. Left high school at age 16 with, with no qualifications and, and no hope and no future and no belief in myself. Um, a very different story in my mid-twenties when I went to West Lothian College and I realised I wasn't daft and that I was getting nurtured and I was getting told how bright my future could be. And so further education as an adult has been life-changing for me. You know, I've done college, I've got a HNC in social sciences, went to Glasgow Caledonian University, and got my honours degree in social sciences with criminology and sociology. 
And then at the end of last year there, just finished my master's degree in social work, also at Glasgow Caledonia. So there's two sides to it. I feel like I was failed like a lot of kids from where I grew up in my area. I was failed at high school. And so many of those lads I went to school with, not just lads, but you know, people I went to school with, haven't been able to take their life very far because of that poor start. Yeah, whereas me going into further education has turned my life around and had I been educated like that from the beginning, I might have spared myself 10 years. Um, so yeah, two, two different sides to that coin. Can I just start skating? Uh, so you did a Master of Science in Social Work. Uh, I'm interested in the fact that it's part of that science faculty because I think that's a far more technical uh, subject than maybe some people perceive because social work people tend to think it's a public service but it's actually a I can imagine I, maybe you, you'll educate us a little bit here but I can imagine behavioural science and other things start to creep into the subject matter can you tell us a wee bit about it yeah I think I think all of us on my course underestimated how broad the subject was going to be uh, because social work delves into so many different areas, whether it be children and families, criminal justice, mental health, addictions, um, older adults, you're looking at such a wide range of different theories and you know, studies and psychological, criminological, sociological, um, everything, everything you can imagine from cognitive to humanist to just all sorts of yeah, it's a, it's a wide, wide-ranging course. It was very hard, um, much harder than I thought it was going to be, uh, which kind of made me feel like all the more proud of to have, to have completed it. But you're definitely, excuse me, you're definitely correct. It's, I think people might want to underestimate just how challenging the theoretical side is as well. Aidan, with regards to your schooling, at that stage of your life, had you given any thought as to what you wanted to do as a career, or did that uh, not come into your life at that point? So my mum said that at my very early age, I wanted to be a journalist, I wanted to write. But by the time I'd gone through that high school, which I can only compare with a, a young offenders, um, we were all just desperate to get away from the place. And it was all about, it was, yeah, it was, it was about survival. Um, I would argue that a lot of us became self-fulfilling prophecies and that we left there thinking that failure was the only option. And you know, I left, when I left high school, there was I had no chance at a career, no chance at owning anything, no chance to get on housing. It was like a 16-year-old going to list for a council house. I went straight into a low-paid job when I was earning about £300 a month as a full-time worker in a shop. Uh, what, what chance did you have to, to earn a living, you know? And, a lot of the lads like me were, were reminded often by teachers of the jobs we were never going to get. Like I was told often I would never work with computers because I was so badly behaved in those classes. But there, were, there was a reason for all the, the poor behaviour and there was so many of us that were the same. And then um, to get older and get educated and realise you're not that. And also to have the ability to look back and research the school and find out the school was actually, you know, had news reporters outside the school at times because it was so bad, you know. So we were failed, we were totally failed. We were chucked into a school where a lot of our socially deprived children were barely educated and then thrown back out again as factory fodder. Do you reflect back at your education as being perhaps an education on how to fail? 
Yeah, we expected nothing more than failure. I say we, I can't talk for everyone, but I'm, I'm thinking about all the friends I had that left school at the same time as me and went on the same medical round for years like I did. And then a lot of them are still trapped in unhealthy lifestyles. And I felt like, you know, so many of us were just given a horrendous start, you know. And, we, and it was normal as well, like, talking about what I'm doing now, if I was to have said in those schemes when I grew up in that school I went to, if I was to have said I want to be an author, you get a doing for it because it would seem like, you know, you're full of yourself. Huh? But uh, was there any aspects of education that you did enjoy uh, at school at all, Aidan? Yeah, I loved drama class and I loved English. And um, as an older person now who's going on to do what I've done in my life, I realised that it was creativity. I was, I was drawn to being creative, but I didn't understand that that's what I was into and it was never nurtured. And to understand between classes, me and my pals were figuring out how we're going to avoid this group, how we're going to avoid this fight, like, is it all going to kick off after school? And um, a lot of it was about avoiding violence. And a lot, I, I felt like the teachers were burnt out. You know, I felt like they were burnt out and they must have had a really hard job to do in those circumstances. But some of them didn't care, some of them did. But um, yeah, that's just, it was what it was, it was one of the worst times of my life, you know, and it was the first time I remember feeling suicidal as well. I mean, what you're saying is that's an institution, that school, that's bad for society, based on your replay of all that. What's happened to that school since? Have you done anything with it, or was this the same? No, I believe a lot of work's been done on the school since. Um, I, I don't. Th I think it's a much better environment now. It's gone through a lot of different regeneration processes, but the area I grew up in, Ladywell, where that high school is, is still considered one of the most socially deprived areas in Scotland. So the area itself needs regeneration, not just the school. Um, that school also took in children from local competing areas that didn't have schools of their own. So there was a lot of territorialism as well at that time. Um, but to answer your question, I do believe there's been a lot of improvements done in that school since my time there. Um, so I can't, I can't speak to it being the same now as it was then, but when I was there, it was, it was a nightmare. If you had the ability to change the schooling, I know that you've said that it has subsequent to you being there, but if you'd had the ability to change something about the way in which people were being educated at the school, what, what do you think would be a good solution to the issues that you faced? I mean, I'd have changed everything about it. I'd have, there was so much, I mean, I say violence, right? We were kids, there was so much violence and there was like, for example, there would be lads that were maybe 17, 18, 19, weren't in the school anymore, but they had problems with lads that were in the school. Well, they could walk off the street into the school <clears> with weapons, with knives or chains, come in, have fights. That's, that's just not a normal environment to get educated in. So it was an extreme place for a period of time, and it would have needed change from top to bottom. So would have needed to have made it a safe place first and foremost, so that kids felt safe in school then you would have had to have at least had the teachers who felt empowered to be there and had that passion in them again. And and then I think the education system itself, you know, we were, not to sound too much like a Marxist or anything, but we were, I guess, given the sort of tools that were needed to go straight into low-paying jobs. That's how I felt. I felt like they were just, we were taught just enough so we could leave and go and get a job working in a shop or a factory. And 
there's no shame whatsoever in that. But what I'm doing in my life now, I can see that there's more and more room for progress. So I never left school thinking about progress. I didn't leave school thinking about a life. I left school thinking about substances. Colin, you and I uh, can reflect back in the new towns that get set up in the early 70s of uh, Erskine, East Kilbride, Cumbernauld and Livingston. I and if I... as well. It's one thing building the infrastructure. It's another thing about how you create the culture in these places. So if you create an identity, because I think, for example, in East Kilbride, uh, they, they started to make it a centre for something, so like the National Engineering Laboratory. They build a bit of pride about it, because they didn't have a university at that time. Or, and a lot of these towns you're talking about didn't have, you know, established, known, uh, you know, places where people could go and do something unique. Um, so they, they didn't necessarily start off with a soul and uh, a, a culture to what it should be about. So basically, you build a concrete jungle, although it's all new, and you just chuck a whole bunch of people in there who are looking for somewhere to stay. You know, if you just let it, you know, be like a melting pot, who knows what's going to turn up? And so I think, you know, if you look at even other areas, I mean, America's extreme. You see the same thing there. The, the, the cities now, are, the city centres, they've, they've gone through the same stuff. I mean, they're old, old buildings. They've refurbished them to take high density of people living in them. Now, if you do that like we did with the new towns, there were some positive aspects, but they didn't necessarily follow it through. Because, for example, I'm, and I'm picking on East Kilbride, sorry for East Kilbride, but East Kilbride had probably the highest, highest uh, underage alcoholism in Scotland. In fact, maybe UK at that time, when they started it off, because there were so many pubs. They built pubs everywhere inside where all the first housing was built. But now it's a different place. And, 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 and you know, you've got the Whirlies, you know, so everybody thinks about the Whirlies and East Kilbride or the National Engineering Laboratory or other things or the tax office. It's got an identity. But so when they build new communities like that, they need to have some identity that people can take pride in and be part of and be, you know, part of the community. There's no community. The infrastructure itself doesn't drive that. It's just my view anyway. I don't know. What do you think, Aidan? I, I felt like um, one word really stands out when I grew up, I, and I didn't know the word at the time, it's only looking back I can, I can identify it, and it is that word actually. Um, sorry, it's the word I, identity. I felt like I had no identity. And a lot of the, you know, we, we hung out, we're probably the last generation who played Chapter Runaway and built gang huts and you know, we all hung out in the streets drinking and, and taking drugs, but there was nothing else for us. There was nothing there for us. And I um, I tried to be careful when I'm talking about growing up there because I don't want it to seem like it was all bad. There were some parts I loved. There was, you know, living in the street I lived in at that time, people knew each other on first name terms. We'd have like gala days and different types of community things that we would, the locals would try and put on. Um, in my street, there was a woman who basically taught everybody to swim. So there was all these little pockets of beautiful experiences and at that time people could choose where they wanted to live so you'd have your grandparents and your auntie and uncle and your cousins nearby and there was a closeness and so those times were great for me where it became a problem for me was when i started to get into my teen years my early teen years because from then onwards there was nothing for us 
And even looking back as a youngster, we, we have a football team there now, but we didn't have a football team. We didn't have, like, it. we had to go to Edinburgh if we wanted to go to a restaurant. We had, like, one hairdressers. So we lacked resources. And it kind of felt like a cocoon. It felt as if the world started and ended in Livingston. And um, so my, my mindset was small. My ideas were small. My belief in what happened was small. Um, and then you have the culture within that, which is the lad culture. And then that culture shrunk down even more. You know, and then there's the working class stuff. So you can't be different. You can't be, like, as, a, as a male, you couldn't show your emotions and you, you couldn't dress a certain way. We all had to have French crops and gold hoops in our ears and drink certain drinks and, you know, like a total uniformity. Um, and so everything shrunk right down. And then you're going through a high school, which is not set up to educate you. So you're not educated. You've got no idea of what's beyond these schemes you're in. And, and before you know it, the quick fix of substances is that's life. And everyone's doing it. So it's a social norm. And you become like what you said about Pat and Evan at school. If you're not the one in the crowd, you're then the weirdo. You're then the outcast. Um, and we also grew up in stories like me and my friends, none of us had for a biological father in our lives. It was like the stories were like my dad was in and out of prison. My, my biological father was in and out of prison. And so all of us would swap these stories about, oh, where's your dad? Who knows where he is, man? Do you know what I mean? So we didn't have male figures to look up to. And I believe a lot of our dads have probably gone through the same kind of stuff before us. So yeah, and the older and older you got, the more balanced it was, the more you turn a corner and you bang in a bunch of lads and you're looking at each other like you're enemies. Like, we think we're enemies. And we don't even know why. So to have gone through all this education and recovery and all sorts of other stuff and that there's there's a there's there's theories in psychology about putting rats in a cage, you know, and you put four rats in a cage and you've all got an equal amount of water and, and food and bread and then you stick an R four rats in but you don't keep up in the, the resources and then you put more rats in and more rats in until all those rats are fighting over the same measly amount and they just kill each other. And that's what I look at it like. Aidan, you touched on uh, it earlier, and I just wonder if uh, we could delve a wee bit further into your, your own personal situation. That at school, you were saying that there was a lot of uh, violence, a lot of uh, uh, time that you weren't really attending school, if you like, and getting involved with other aspects. I just wonder if you could maybe tell us how you, you ended up getting caught in the addiction cycle. Yeah, that was, I mean, again, very normal. So football was a big thing. And you'd look at the older lads playing football and you'd look up to them. And if you got a chance to play a game with them, it was a brilliant thing, you know. And suddenly those older lads weren't playing football anymore. They were drinking on the street. And so you're now looking at that and going, all right, well, that's what I want to do next. And then in high school, it really started. We had, ironically, in drama class, drama being the class where I would quite enjoy being educated because I liked the creative side of it. One of my classmates when we were about 13, 14, his dad owned a corner shop and I don't know if his dad was giving it to him or he was nicking it, but he was coming in with half bottles of vodka and half bottles of whiskey and some alcohol, but really just you know, hard spirits. And then he was selling them to us. So we had maybe like paper rounds or pocket money or whatever, scraping our money together. We're buying body and whiskey and we're standing on street corners, like all the other kids in our area, 
and we're down in like straight vodka and straight whiskey for a very young age, a teenage age, and we're going straight into it. Um, blackout drunk for 14 years old, and then everything else filters down like weeds and eckies, and eventually come across speed. And it was actually, I think I was about 19 before I came across cocaine, which was the you know, it doesn't really matter about the drug, but to me, I described it as the drug I got married to and fell in love with. Uh, but certainly from the age of 14, and it's the same behaviours, it's the same escapism, same unhealthy coping mechanisms. So there was just a lot of unhealthy life choices, but they were so readily available and they were such a quick escape from the reality we all had. And what sort of t- time cycle are we talking about? Was that whilst you were still at school that you started to become a- a- addicted, uh, Aidan? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, by the time I left school, I was full-blown addict. Well, it's, it's, it's obviously it's a sad story, but it, it's good to see you there now, Aidan, because uh, you're looking healthy, which I is know. a good thing. Um, but it's, of course, it's that uh, it's a transformation that would be interesting for the audience who's listening to this, how you went from that to what you've become, because uh, I think that's an important message for us to get. But, uh, I mean, I, I'd done a little bit of uh, background uh, reading to see a bit about your book, because obviously I haven't read your book. But you, you mentioned this, you know, you've mentioned a few times, and it's a subject matter that's coming up in various uh, issues around, uh, you know, or adults who reflect in their youth and felt like they were steered the wrong way. So you mentioned that you were groomed, um, and it's a sad topic to talk about, but can you tell us a, a bit more about, because you, you pick, built the picture of the environment you were in, mm-hmm. and you said it was a breeding ground for what happened to you, but you're also saying that somehow you were targeted. Uh, that's what it suggests. You know, and, and when you think young 15-year-olds here these days, how, how, do, how do you prevent them from being taken by that target? Do you know what I mean? So just, you know, maybe give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah. Um, so when I was 14 years old, my mum, and so I've got a stepdad, but I call him my dad because he, he raised me with my mum. So they moved us to a place called Elyburn, um, which is a more middle-class area. And the idea was to try and get me away from all the violence. That didn't actually change anything, but yeah, that was them trying their best to pull me away from it. When when we moved, so I was almost 14, I was about 13 and a half, maybe a little bit older than that. We got a home computer for the first time, so big box computer. And we got the internet for the first time. And it was AOL, and it was dial-up, and it was the old school sitting listening to the sort of dial-up tone that would come on and there was all these chat rooms um, called team chat and all that kind of stuff and um you know i would i would go on those and there was a an older guy that kept speaking to me and that wasn't uncommon you don't have an older men message yet but this one particular person would message me a lot and would, would get speaking to me and I started to confide in him that I was suicidal and I was telling him about the problem I was having with lads and of course at this time I didn't realise I had all these uh, abandonment issues over my biological father and attachment issues and stuff like that and me and my stepdad weren't close, we really struggled, I struggled with that relationship, he was an authoritarian 
Um, again, partly for the right reasons, partly to try and guide me and discipline me, but as a young teenager who didn't have a natural connection to him, I, I totally rebelled against that. And so this older person chatting to me, you know, over time would tell me things like I, I would sit and, and type and I'd be saying, you know, I'm, I'm crying. I feel suicidal and I'm crying. And he would write back, well, I'm crying too, and that kind of thing. Um, and it turned out he, he had a he had he was from down south and it, it turned out he had work up in West Lothian. Now again I'm young and I'm naive and I'm not questioning how this older man happens to have work in West Lothian, this wee place where I'm from. And then after about a year of speaking we met. Um and he I'm not be too graphic about it, but he took me into a hotel room and done things that shouldn't have happened and at the time I'm thinking I'm consenting with this. I wasn't quite sure of anything. I was, in, I was in so much turmoil. I was a suicidal young lad, and we met a few different times. Um, and this was coinciding with the violence, the you know, struggling at school, and I'd felt I'd fallen down all the classes right to the bottom. We called them foundation classes, which meant in the very lowest classes at school. And it was just everything was was horrendous, and, and that happened um, at that same time in my life, and. I often look back and I'm, I'm in a good place right now, but for a long time I was I was angry about how I could have been so foolish with that because I was so streetwise, yet so naive to the internet, so naive, it was, it was, the, it was brand new, it was, it was a new thing. Um, you know, we didn't use terms like um, catfishing or grooming or, or none of that stuff and I didn't even think that anything about that. I thought it was you know, a friend, you know, and it was only years and years later that I really discovered the truth about this individual and and had to go through lots of therapy, lots of recovery, and then I reported had to go through the whole process of reporting to the police and stuff. But yeah, that was um, that was right back in the middle of the, the worst times of my life. Yeah. Appreciate you sharing that uh, with us. Uh, Aidan, you've described one aspect of it. I just wonder if we can maybe, uh, with regards to the, the addiction side of things, you must have come across some exceedingly negative and brutal experiences. And I wonder if you could maybe just uh, describe maybe perhaps some of the lowest points that you got to, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. wow, there's, there's a lot. So I'll, I'll try and pick out, we call them in recovery, we call them rock bottoms. And I think sometimes there's a misconception that you have this one rock bottom, but I have loads of them. One of them was almost getting murdered. Um, the lads I had a problem with, and we were all involved in the drug scene, and um, they attempted, made an attempt on my life. And then a couple of weeks later, they made a successful attempt on someone else's life. Um, and that lad's not long out of prison, the guy done that. And he grew up, same thing, he grew up in a family where there were drug dealers and so it was just history repeating itself. Um, being suicidal, ended up on a bridge wanting to kill myself. Um, you know, a police officer actually saved my life that time. But I think there's, there's one example that stands out to me, I guess, as being what I think is the worst I went to. Now, I'm in a good place right now. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm healthy, I'm in recovery, and I believe I've made an amends for the action, but... When I was 17, my brother Declan was diagnosed with a very rare soft tissue cancer when he was when he was um, 10 years old, that was, and then he passed away when he was 14, so I was 21. Right in the middle of that somewhere, it, the cancer was so rare that, you know, my mum and dad ended up on the, the national news trying to get help from somewhere. 
and my brother was getting trial treatment in Russia and um, they a guinea pig for the treatment but it cost a lot of money and obviously you know, my mum and dad worked hard and done well for themselves but this was it was costing thousands at a time for the treatment for the flights for all that and so I had a sponsored skydive, me and my one of my best friends, so we raised money. Um, and this was before Just Giving Pages, it was before um, online. It was an A4 sheet of paper, a brown paper bag, and people handing you money. And so we went around, raised about three, three and a half grand or something, done the skydive successfully. It was a tandem jump, St Andrews Airfield. And whilst my little brother was in Russia with my mum and my older brother, um, there was a night where me and my friend, two both addicts, couldn't get cocaine, couldn't get it from anywhere. The only dealers that were going to talk to us wanted money up front. We didn't have any money, we couldn't take anything. And I had this brainstorm all the way there, that, that sky type money was sitting in my mum and dad's house. And this is as low as you go as an addict. You're like, okay, it's not stealing if I just borrow it and I'll, I'll put it back. Um, and so I broke into my mum and dad's house took the money out and um, eventually my dad's caught me. My mom, my, my dad was still in Scotland. Um, that's my stepdad. And he caught me. And it was probably, you know, I, I can't think of a lower moment than that. I've had lots of serious moments, you know, but I can't think of a, a lower moment. And then you know, I ended up paying the money back, but that wasn't really what it was about. It was about the act. It was about the, the depths, you know. I've done a lot of things like broke into dealers' houses and stuff like that, it doesn't seem to have the same level of shame <laughs> as, as doing what I've done there. And then there was another thing again involved my little brother. He was we it was it was at the end of his life and we knew that there was only a few months left. We knew that he was sleeping forty eight hours at a time. And it was Christmas Eve and he was he'd been sleeping for like two days in a row. And it, we knew as a family that any any day now he could possibly pass away. And me and my friends who were living together in our addiction lifestyle, we got cocaine on Christmas Eve and we're taking it all through the night. It was like 6, 6.30 in the morning on Christmas Day and my older brother messaged me to tell me my younger brother had woken up for Christmas and that he was coming to get me in half an hour. And I had half an hour left to try and straighten out and I couldn't. I'd been on cocaine all night. And I had cotton mouth, my heart was pounding, my head was burst, I was total mess. Big brother came and got me, took me to mum and dad's house and my little brother, I know he'd, he'd done it for us as a family because he knew it'd be our last ever Christmas and he opened all his gifts and stuff and I couldn't even string a sentence together. Um, every time I tried to speak he was just coming out in a mess because I was so messed up and my mum said to me you need to go and have a lie down and I spent most of it in her bedroom uh, withdrawing and convulsing from the cocaine, went back down, had some beer, tried to get through Christmas dinner went home and passed out. And that was my last Christmas with my little brother. Um, I'm in a place in life now where I believe I've made amends for my past and I believe that my brother plays a role in my recovery and what I'm doing. But to give you some examples of how low it gets, that's just that's just the main ones that are fresh at the top of my head, you know, and that's, that's the level of deprivation that addiction takes you to. Thank, thanks for sharing that uh, very personal information that you've, you've told us there, Aidan, it's uh, appreciated. Aidan, on a, a more positive note, if we can try and take it uh, in a different direction now, uh, uh, 
at what point do you think it was in your life that you decided that you wanted to to set the recovery process and in, in, into action? So I'm at, <clears throat> I think there's a moment in time that stands out where I knew things had to change. I didn't know, I'd never even heard of the word addict, to be honest with you, but I didn't know I was an addict, which is crazy. Um, we didn't use terms like mental health or trauma or, or social deprivation or none of that where I came from. So there was none of that language or information. So it was really fear and it was the night I was almost murdered. Um, and it was, you know, I'm not, when I say these things, it sounds like it just rolls off my tongue and it's so blasé, but it's just because it was such a normal thing. And it happened that night and I managed to get away and I was very, very close to being killed. And then, you know, two weeks later when one of the guys successfully killed someone else who was in the same world that we were on, that's when I started to realise that this is this is getting very real. And so I went to my GP. I didn't know where else to go. No, there was no recovery. It wasn't a visible thing. Neither was addiction. Addiction was a shameful thing and there was no such thing as recovery. And I'd only ever heard of alcoholics, you know, I'd never heard of anything else. I went to my GP. They sent me to an organisation called Weldas, which is West Lothian Drug and Alcohol Service. That's a third sector charity in my area, which still operates today. And then I got a counsellor who was a guy that just volunteered and we'd meet up on a Tuesday and Thursday night or something like that. And it was him that asked me and he didn't he didn't tell me I was an addict. He just asked me, he said, do you think maybe you're an addict? And then nobody had ever asked me that before. I'd never been asked if I might be an addict. And then they guided me to recovery meetings. So Narcotics Anonymous, which is a recovery fellowship, self-run, self-support and recovery group. Um, no different to Alcoholics Anonymous, just that it focuses on addiction rather than one specific substance. And then when I got there, I met a guy who had a big scar down his face and he'd been in and out of prison and he grew up in the same areas as me and he was rough and uh, a totally gruff man. But he was a year and a half clean. And um, he started speaking to me and what I got was uh, identification. And that thing we talked about earlier, my identity, I realised that I was an addict. I realised I wasn't the only person who lived that way. Because at times I thought I was just crazy. I thought, to do the things I've done, you must just be crazy. I was also well aware that so many from my area were similar. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning. It wasn't like I didn't get clean overnight. I had periods of clean, getting wasted again. But it was certainly the seed being planted. So yeah, the night the night where I was almost murdered was the beginning of me thinking I need to do something to change this or I'm not going to see it through. I think the good thing there, the, the, to twin up the, the points you made, because you mentioned earlier about you had been suicidal, but the threat of someone killing you actually made you realise, no, I want to survive. And that itself, I think, for me, uh, listening to your story, that that is a huge turning point. The fact that something inside you said, "I want to survive," that's and then find, the pur- find a find a purpose is the other thing, yeah. I suppose. That's you're, you're the only person who's ever pointed that out, and I've never thought of that. And it's such a it's such an important point. I think whenever I wanted to die as well, I was ne- it was always that place between. You don't want to live, but you don't want to die. And it's, it's like, I think most, maybe I can't speak for other people. I think when I got to places of being suicidal, 
it wasn't really one to die, you know, it was one it was one away from everything that was going on. Um but yeah, you're so right that night I thought I was gonna die and I didn't want to die and I wanted a chance at life and yeah, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you're now a, a, an author of your own book. You've uh, written a, a book about your your issues that you've had, and as you've mentioned before, you've also uh, managed to achieve an MSc in social work and uh, an honours degree in social scientist. Uh, can you tell us a wee bit more? About- yeah. So the book came about because, well, I'd always loved writing. And then after lots of times of coming out in recovery and relapsing, I got back into recovery after my last and hopefully final relapse, and that was over three and a half years ago. And when I came back into the recovery scene and I went to go to do my master's degree, I um, my grandmother died and I wrote her eulogy and helped carry her to her final resting place. Then I read the eulogy um, and when I tell the story, it sounds a little bit airy-fairy and far-fetched, but it's really not. It's, it's the God's honest truth. When I stepped off the podium after reading my grand geology, I just got this feeling from her that, maybe not from her, but I think it's from her, that I should write a book. It was just like, it wasn't words, it wasn't like some spirit jumped in and spoke to me. It was just a gut feeling that said, write a book, write a book, write a book. And it was just there, you know, and... And I was thinking about it for a while and I went home and I just thought I'm going to start writing and you know, typing and I, I thought where would you start because I've gone through so many things that you know losing my brother, the abuse, the addiction um, and by this point my son had already been through his cancer journey so there was just so many things that had happened in life and I wanted to make sense of it but I felt like what happened with the grooming was the place I needed to start. So I named chapter one groomed and I wrote that first and I just went straight into it. And I thought I'm going to start right from what happened there. And then it just went from there and like as I was writing that, I didn't know it was a memoir. I didn't know the genre. I didn't know that in its raw form it was a manuscript. Excuse me, when it was done, I didn't know you pitched it to agents or publishers. I thought that... um, (coughs) you know, magically someone will just find me, <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't, so I had to do a lot of research about what I've actually got here and also I had a friend that I studied with in my undergrad, uh, another working class guy, similar age to me, similar background, and then I asked him to read it. And I said to him, I says, listen, I want you to read this and I want you to be honest and give me genuinely, brutally honest feedback. I was like, don't let me be the guy that turns up on the X Factor but you can't sing, you know, but... All his family have told him he's a good singer, and uh, and then he turns up and Simon McKill has to tell him that actually you can't sing. So I says, um, I says, just be honest with me. If this writing is just good enough for me and, and close friends, then that's cool. If it was good enough to send out there, I'm going to try. And he said to me, he said, man, this is like reading a movie. He's like the writing's really great, blah blah blah. And, and I knew he was one of my friends that I'd made at uni, so I didn't know him from my previous lifestyle either. Um, I knew he was being serious. And then it was the process, so I'm going to have to start figuring out how you pitch this. And then it was like, I got rejected 99% of the time, you know. I didn't know what, I didn't even know what I was doing with the pitch at first. Every agent and publisher wants a different pitch, and you have to use certain buzzwords 
to describe the, the market, the book market and all this. And I was just like, listen, I'm just a guy with a story and here it is. Not uh, content with just writing one book, uh, Aidan, you're currently writing a, a, a second book. Can you tell <laughs> us a wee bit about uh, that book? So, obviously when my first book came out, my publisher basically says it's an unknown author. If you sold 100 books, that would be considered a success and that would be enough to get another contract for a second book. And it sold thousands and it became a best-selling book and, and I got a lot of great feedback about the writing but also the topics. And I realised that it wasn't just a one-book deal for me anymore. I realised I'm a writer and that something I never ever would have said before, I would never have said I'm a writer because I'd have felt like it was too grandiose and I was getting above my station to call myself that. But now I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm a good writer and there are serious topics that I want to unpack. The memoir was a different style. The memoir was me speaking to the reader. So... I think it's very limited what you can do when you're writing in a memoir because there's not dialogue, there's not storylines, there's not plot twists, you know, there are shocks and surprises when you put in what's happened in your life and you can write it in an entertaining style, but it is a very a one-on-one thing and I thought, okay, I've spoke about my experiences, but I really want to talk about the lads I grew up with because I think so many of us are misunderstood. I think there's a lot of phrases flung around now to describe men you know um men like me who grew up where i did we made choices from a very few available choices and we were given all information and we were in this hotbed of hatred and we all saw each other as enemies and i just felt like we weren't educated and we grew up in a town that didn't have anything for us and there was no chance at functional relationships and there was no chance at houses and careers and all of that um, and most of us wouldn't have had a clue how to articulate any of it or understand any of it. We wouldn't have known what was going on around us as far as socially, economically. We wouldn't have had any idea what was happening inside of us psychologically. We didn't have a clue about spirituality or anything. We just knew that every day, one day at a time, we're in competition with everybody around us, everyone's a threat, and drugs and substances will, will keep us going. So I decided to write a fiction and make it a bit more, uh, well, it's, it's, there's, it's for entertainment, but it's also got a lot of fact in it about what I really experienced. I've fictionalised a lot of it and I've stretched the truth out in places for entertainment purposes. But this one's not about my life now, it's about the lads I grew up with. It's about what was it about that time in the early 2000s in that new town where all these lads, you know, we would have taken a baseball bat to the head for each other. That's how much we loved each other. Yet, I couldn't have gone up to my pal and hugged him and said, I'm struggling. We didn't, we didn't know how to do that. We didn't know how to have relationships with women. We didn't know anything about being romantic or, or, or having an equal partner. Um, it was all about raves, trance music, substances, violence. Um, so it's, it's about that. And because it's fictional, I can have storyline and I can have dialogue and I have, can have plot twists. But every single character is based on someone I grew up with. And so I want to explain their story. Maybe maybe someone might read it and, and just have a little bit more patience for some of the men that are struggling and who maybe are in their 30s and their 40s now and they're slowly trying to turn their life around and change who they are because perhaps we weren't given the best start. 
think very topical at the moment with uh, the issues that we've got with regards to mental health issues that uh, are, are very significant at the moment. I wonder in the opposite hand, you've you've written a couple of books now and you, you, you spoke about enjoying creativity. I also wonder, have you ever been inspired by any books yourself? Yeah, so the books I started reading which really inspired me were quite political. So um, Nelson Mandela, uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, people like that. And I think what I identified with, obviously my experience was nothing like their experience, but there are, there are similarities and feelings. And I think feeling alienated and feeling like there was no social justice and and always feeling like I was fighting all the time and fighting for change and, and feeling tired and broken and worn out. And people like what each of those men represented and, and what they'd gone through and the people they were fighting for had gone through. I just, I found a lot of faith and in, in work by them. So quite political, those ones. But there was other books that I came across that I really liked, Catching the Rye, um, as far as, I love the voice that you get from the, the character. You really feel like you're in that story and you just feel like it's authentic. And I've tried to capture that kind of feeling in my fiction. There's a few other books, one called Post Office by Charles Bukowski. And um, the reason I love that is because it's just like, again, it's like he's used a lot of his real life experiences and he's just throwing the words from mind to paper. Um, Train spotting's an obvious one. I know that's probably quite cliche, but what I really love about that is, again, you feel like you're there with the characters. Um, Irvin Welsh has a great job in not having to explain things. You know, he's just, he tells you what's going on through the characters and you're in it. And I've, again, I've taken that on board with my fiction that I'm talking about an area in West Lothian that most readers aren't going to be aware of. But I don't have, you know, it's not going to be good quality writing if I need to spend half a page explaining everything. No, oh, this is Lady Well and this is that. So he has a really good technique of just bringing you in and with a sentence or two, you understand why that skill had that impact on that character. And, um, so, yeah, Poverty Safari by Darren McGarvey, um, which is a kind of like a buffet of different subjects. It's... It's not really a coherent start to finish book and he says that himself at the beginning. You can pick out chapters and read them individually or read it from start to finish. But I guess what I love about his book and his kind of work is he's a guy that came from social deprivation and he's throwing punches where we're not supposed to as working class folk. And so I liked, I liked that. I've actually written some of these down just so I don't forget. Um, and Feed and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, by Hunter S. Thompson because it's a mixture of fact, um, fiction and fantasy about his experiences, his crazy experiences, and I kind of borrowed that idea from my fiction as well. I, I'm not wanting to just follow up a memoir when or get out of memoir. You can only do that really once, I think, and, and to be a fiction that has to stand on its own two feet as well. So I've made it entertaining, I've put characters in, I've, I've put certain elements of uh, outlandish stuff in there to, to fit with the time. Um, but it's also based on a lot of factual stuff I've gone through or people I know have went through as well. So those are just a hand, handful of books. I'm, I'm trying to read 
as far away as I can. I'm reading Stephen King at the moment. Have you heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? No. The author. As if he's a famous author. Um, he wrote a book called The Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which actually in some schools, actually, they brought it into school curriculum. But it is actually a little bit of his life story. He was uh, speaking out about what the communist regime had done in all these gulag prisons with people who wanted to be more liberal, right? But uh, the book describes, you know, how uh, Ivan Denisovich, a day in the life of him, how he survived in mm. that gulag. It's actually, with the subject matter you're dealing with, a good little background research to add to your dimensions yeah. on it. It's really interesting. Go on then. See then he got, he got uh, awarded for it as well. Uh, when he got, but of course it was the East versus West thing. This was back before the Berlin Wall came down. But uh, but it's actually a, an interesting book because it really deals with life survival. That's what's really interesting about it. If, just trying to imagine what it would be like is just mm-hmm. horrendous. But uh, but if you're doing that kind of background checking and getting ideas, look at that. Aidan, you're obviously now extremely motivated to do the, the, the all the things from writing books to all the other aspects you're involved with, your education. Where do you think that's emanated from in your life? You know, a lot of different areas. See, when I was 21, you know, and I'm watching my 14-year-old brother pass away in front of my face, that that does something to you. That, that makes you realise how short life is. And then when you finally get recovery and you realise how many years you wasted and lost to addiction, there's just this, this life is short, you know, this, this life is short. And even though, you know, I look at my addiction in two ways, I look at it as, as part of it being really selfish, horrendous choices I made, and I hurt a lot of people. I also know that I was failed as well, so there's two sides to the coin. And not to sound too cheesy or cliche, but I'm determined now to be part of the solution in society. You can't change everything as one individual, but certainly collectively can play a role in making a difference. And I'm just hungry. I'm hungry to learn. I'm hungry, you know, I feel more empowered as an individual if I'm educated I realise that and that doesn't stop after a degree you know that that comes with more reading more reading books meeting our people trying different cultures shutting my mouth and listening and hearing what other people have to say you know um, it's a hard skill right <laughs> still learning as well man yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I'm just I'm hungry to make a difference with the time I've got left and I've got three kids and I want my legacy to be that they're three healthy, happy, well-adjusted individuals who have got great futures um, and don't have any of the baggage of trauma from my generation or the generation before on their shoulders. Um, and I want to I want to do as much as I can creatively. I want to leave my stamp there and I want to leave a stamp in my local area um, purely just doing something that helps our people and opens doors for our folks. So. Yeah, I guess, you know, I know a lot of people who are gone now through overdosing and or suicide or violence has ended their life short. Um, we're just not here long enough to mess around. But, uh, this isn't a dress rehearsal. Yeah. I get one shot at it. Aidan, the very last question you'll be pleased to hear, uh, uh, and it's one that we ask all our guests, and that is, uh, 
What is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? And what piece of advice would you pass on to the next generation? So this was a piece of advice that in, in recovery, when we're doing like a fellowship programme, you have what's called a sponsor. And for anyone not familiar with that, it's not someone that gives you money. It's someone that um, guides you through the recovery programme. Um, and they do it, you know, it's freely done and we help each other. And I was worried at one point about all the years I've lost in addiction and going back into further education in my mid-twenties. And I was like, oh, but I'm in my mid-twenties, maybe that time's passed now. And then my sponsor said, listen, no matter what you do, that time's going to pass the same. So you could let that time pass by being unhappy and doing things you don't care about, or you could spend that time doing something that matters to you. And, um, and it was just something that's never left me now. I mean, I go, I go back to college a lot, my West Lothian College, I go there a lot and talk to students. And I know mature students, not just mature students, but I guess mature students will feel how I felt. Oh, no, I'm too old. Oh, no, it's, it's too late. And I always say that. I say, listen, this time's going to pass no matter what. If you go and put it off for a year, that year's going to go. Um, but if you stick it, you stick with it and do it, then the time will pass and you'll have spent it doing something you really want to do. So that was a great piece of advice. Advice that I would pass on, and it's really just simple. What I've done now is unthinkable from where I was, but also from the mindset we all got with in my street, and, you know, in my school, even in my family, you know, about going to uni and, and, and writing a book and all of that. I used to believe that you had to be an egghead to do any of that stuff. You had to be just super smart. And I'm not suggesting that I'm not smart, but the, the, three, the three things I would say, the three words, and I think anyone anywhere can apply this to anything, and it's hard work, perseverance, and determination. And I think you could have those three things and achieve anything you set your mind to. And you know, I went to I went to uni with some folk who are much more naturally academic than me, and watched as they dropped out because they didn't have the work ethic. Whereas when my son was fighting cancer, I was studying at his bedside, you know. And it's just the difference between how much you want and how much you don't, I guess. Great advice. Colin, I think I think one thing, yeah, I was just because uh, listening to all the things that uh, I'm hearing as well, Aidan, uh, you're a survivor, uh, Thank you. uh, and you're doing well at it. Uh, I think the thing that you, you you emulate there as well is this: you've forgiven yourself for what was wrong in the past. Sometimes people can't do that, and and therefore that's where the punish themselves unnecessarily and, and mentally. Right? So so I think the the good example they're setting for us is that you can get through it's always good to hear some of the experience you has if you're struggling with it. But uh, but the, the important thing is people need to forgive themselves because of all the horrendous things you've seen. Uh, but you but they're part of your life, you can't undo them. But you need to forgive yourself for that so you can move on. So and I think you you also have that. That's what I take from some of the things you've been saying. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, that was 100% achieved through recovery. Um, one of one of the things we talk about in recovery is that holding on to guilt and shame is like keeping the door open for a relapse. So, um, yeah. forgiveness is and it's it's powerful that I've of all the people I've heard that put in the book as well, and I contacted them before the book. Um, they all they all forgave me as well. Um, and people that hurt me, I've, I've forgiven the people that have hurt me too. And that is just like a total 
clear conscience to move forward in life. Yeah, yeah. Listen, thanks very much for joining us here in the I Was Going To Podcast. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you and hearing some of your stories. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well done, Aidan. Well done and keep going, mate. Keep going. Thank you.